Welcome to the Book Evangelist Podcast, here to spread the good news that books and reading will serve us all. Lissa and Marion will be talking about what's up in their reading and writing lives, reviewing recent reads, urging each other on to writing triumph, and generally wallowing in the pleasure of hanging out with a friend who loves books. Join us. Wallow with us. This is episode 12, in which we are discussing The 10,000 Doors of January by Alex E. Harrow, a debut fantasy fiction novel and we'll be reflecting on the unexpected in our own January reading and writing experiences. Good morning, Lissa. Good morning, Marianne. We're having a morning, yeah? Uh, it's, I mean, it's early, but I've done some <laughs> laundry and I've made some soup, so I feel pretty great. Wow. I'm so impressed with you. I made, I made toast. Toast is good. Toast is good. Yeah. And I, I unexpectedly have uh, two children here today. So I have locked everybody out. I mean, it's out. not completely inexplicable, right? It's not completely inexplicable. That's right. Why Why um, my whole city is not going to school today. But I have allowed one cat to be here with me. And she's going to be nice and quiet. And I, I didn't want to lock her out in the rest of the house with two children and another cat and a dog. So. It seems like an adventure right outside your door. <laughs> it is. I've, I have... Um, I've threatened everyone in the house. Like, if there's any outbreak of mass warfare, like, unless you're bleeding from the ears, do not come find me. Stuff like that. Because I want to talk solid. to you instead. Yay. Yay. <laughs> so, so we read a book. Yeah, we did. And we read it because I chose it. Um, Why did you choose it? Well, uh, we needed something to read. <laughs> It's true. And we needed a thing to read in January. We needed a thing to read in January, and it was right at the end of the year, and all of the best books of the year lists were coming out. And I was looking at them and looking at all the books I didn't read that are on the best books of the year list, which is a lot. And kind of of the, would you say that the greatest of all the book lists is the NPR concierge list? I mean, it is to me. Yeah, I think so, because it, yeah. I'm an NPR girl. They're trying the hardest to help connect readers and books. Yeah, and I don't think they, they're not, there's nothing in it for them, monetarily, you know. Um, they're not being paid by anybody. So, but anyway, this book, The 10,000 Doors of January, was on that list, and it was a book that I had heard about, and it turned out to be on every other list as well. And then, I was over at one of my local library branches, and they were having a book group, and this was the book for it, and I thought, it's fate. I should pick that book, and I should make Lissa read it, and then I can, like, do the multiple birds with run one rock thing, and I can come to this book group and meet people, and it'll be great. And then I was sick for the entire month of January, um, hard down with bronchitis, and I'm an asthmatic as well, so when you combine those things, it's not pretty, and I didn't get to go to the book group because I was sick. But I got to read the book, so that's something, right? That is something. And, and you sometimes. Can- that's you, what book groups do. They give you that deadline to help you stretch, even if you don't ultimately get to do the reward part with the book yeah. group. To tell the absolute honest truth, I wasn't quite finished with the book by the time the book group itself happened, although I could have gone ahead another 30 pages maybe. Uh, but I did keep the book and pay a catastrophic fine at a nickel a day after I got well enough to go back and turn the book in. So... But, but what I found is, well, regardless of how bad it. my finds are, librarians always have worse book finds than I do, so. Um, I always have horrible library finds. <laughs> yes, every librarian I know does. It's your, it's your nature, I guess. I'm always like, but you come here every day. I know. I mean, it's usually by choice that I haven't returned the things. So. <laughs> yes. I was kind of like, I'm willing to take the hit on this one. They can just wait. Yes. Excellent. Well, I guess I'm going to read the Goodreads description of this book to give people who don't know what it is a, uh, an idea. Excellent. So here's what Goodreads says. In the early 1900s, a young woman embarks on a fantastical journey of self-discovery after finding a mysterious book in this captivating and lyrical debut. In a sprawling mansion filled with peculiar treasures, January Scholar is a curiosity herself. 
As the ward of the wealthy Mr. Locke, she feels little different from the artifacts that decorate the halls, carefully maintained, largely ignored, and utterly out of place. Then she finds a strange book, a book that carries the scent of other worlds and tells a tale of secret doors, of love, adventure, and danger. Each page turn reveals impossible truths about the world, and January discovers a story increasingly intertwined with her own. Lush and richly imagined, a tale of impossible journeys, unforgettable love, and the enduring power of stories awaits in Alex E. Harrow's spellbinding debut. Step inside and discover its magic. That sounds good. It does sound good. I just, as I was reading that, I remembered one of the things I wanted to talk about. So I'm just noting it down here. Oh, you're Which, so organized. Uh, well, not really. I'm highly unorganized today. But this was something that actually I, I will flat out say at the beginning that I did enjoy this book. But there was one aspect of it that I did not like. And I just remembered what it was as I was reading that description. So I'll well, spring it on you. Make me, I know. <laughs> going to make sure I remember to ask. Yeah. Well, before we start discussing the book, because our book discussions are always spoiler-filled, what else do we want to talk about first? Like, what have you been up to in your reading and writing life? Well, in my writing life, um, I will say that I got involved with something called Rev Pit 10 Queries. Do you know what Rev Pit is? Only through seeing things on your Twitter, but I don't actually totally understand it. Okay. It is... An event, there's a big event and little events, kind of like there's Big NaNoWriMo and then there's Camp. There's right. Rev Pit and then there's the Rev Pit Mini Events. And Rev Pit is for, uh, it's a group called Revise and Resubmit, which is a group of editors that, you know, you can hire to edit your work. And they do this, I'm sure, to, you know, promote themselves and editors in general, but it's also uh, a neat opportunity. The big Rev Pit event this year is going to be in April. And you can interact with these editors on Twitter and see what they like. And then when the entry date comes, you can send in your query letter and the first five pages of your manuscript, a novel manuscript, to them. And you, in that event, you pick editors and they receive submissions and they choose one book that they got to give you a complete revision on. And, and then they have a big showcase of these revised things. And it's a, like a big deal in the becoming a discovered author world, I guess. The way yeah. people get agents is through RevPit. Um, because the, I guess the agents would know that somebody else has filtered through a lot of books and, and uh, has made this book more polished so you're getting something that's more ready. Um, but the mini event, I don't know why Twitter threw it up to me, but it did. And... This is one where they were, you would send in, enter a, a raffle, and if they pulled your name, you would submit your query letter and the first five pages of your novel, and then an editor will give you a, an opinion on those things and, and maybe help buff them a little. And on a whim, I entered the raffle, and they pulled my name, so... That's so exciting. Yay! So I was like, ah, now I have this novel that I have not finished re uh, revising yet, but it had a good first five pages at least. And I nice. had to sit, yay! And I had to sit down and write a query letter for it very quickly, which is super hard. Uh, if you're listening out there and you've never written a query letter, it's really difficult. Um, so on Monday, I guess a couple days ago, they tweet out, all the editors tweet out anonymously um, what they thought of each of the 10 queries they read over. And then later they send you privately an email with their thoughts and stuff like that. And so I ended up reading all of these tweets on Monday and like anything that was like, this is the worst book I've ever read. I was like, that's mine. And then everything no. was like, it's the greatest book ever. That's mine. Yes. Um, uh, and I mean, thing, and it, they always put what the genre is if they know it, but even if it was like horror or a picture book, I'm like, it's mine! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I have not had the email back yet, Lissa, to tell me what they thought, so I thought for sure I would have it by this morning and I could tell you uh, what the results of it's are, what that person thought. It's just building suspense dun, for dun, our dun, listeners. Dun, and also that's and right, that's right, and me. So as soon as I know, I will tell you. Uh, oh. And well, but uh, it 
super interesting to see, even if your query isn't in it, it's super interesting just to read editors tweeting about query letters and opening pages of novels and what people could do better there. Because the same themes happen over and over and over again, which tells you generally what you need to pay attention to when you're doing those things. So it's super interesting. So I've been doing that, um, which is lucky because I certainly have not been reading. I've been in a terrible reading slump. Which is tricky. Why do you think you're in a reading slump? I don't know. Part of it was maybe I was just so darn sick. I mean, one reason this book took me so long is I could not, I did not even have the energy to hold a book up. That's is, sad. Doesn't that sound sad? I'm like little Dorrit. It's awful. So <laughs> audiobooks That's are okay. That's why they made audiobooks. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it was just... I was just exhausted and coughing and listless. So maybe it was the sickness. Maybe it's because it was January and it's just like really cold and gray and dark, which you would think would be curl up and read weather. And it was certainly my intention to do so. Um, maybe my uh, technology habit has left me with the attention span of a green bean. I don't know. What do you, what do, you do when you're in a reading slump? Um, I mean... I set deadlines and accountabilities, like to get things done, to discuss them with people mostly. Um, but also try to give myself, like cut myself a lot of slack. So like take four or five books to bed with me and say, well, whichever one interests me, that's what I'll read. Or I could go to sleep. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just try to like dangle more shiny things in front of me and have less <laughs> guilt and, okay. well, and reread. I mean, if I'm in a slump, mm -hmm. sometimes the effort of reading a new thing and investing in something unknown is too much. So rereading is good. Yeah. I don't know. I could say I, I did re-listen on audio to the first of the Lockwood books, which I tend to do every year, quite frankly, um, and which I think I have bullied your other book group into reading. Oh, uh, yeah. that's. Um, I need to read um, a really giant historical nonfiction book for book club at the library next week, and then I need to read that for book club right after that. Get the audio book. It's great on audio. Maybe I will. It's a superb audiobook. So do that. Um, but I've been kind of interested because, like, reading this book, if I'm already in a reading slump, if no book, no matter how wonderful, can hold my attention for very long, or I'm just kind of, for one reason or another, just slogging through books instead of eating them alive, Right. How does that affect how I see a book? Is it going to taint my views on it or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And since no I think that being in a slump definitely affects how you see a book, whether you finish a book, whether you like a book. And the funny thing is, the other book I had um, committed to reading was The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern, which turns out to be a book remarkably similar to this one. To the point that I think maybe, at least Aaron Morgenstern, but maybe both authors have been in interview discussing how similar their book is to the other book. Um, this one, 10,000 Doors of January, came out first, and then The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern, which she's been writing for like a billion years, billion and a half years. Um, She's, which it's was not a her big, debut, but she doesn't have no, a no, lot no. of books out. No, I think just one other, which is The Night Circus, um, right. which is a super famous book. And then she's been writing The Star of the Sea for a long time. She's just a child by my standards, you know. Um, but I will admit to the world here, I am that person who didn't really like The Night Circus. Um, is It just was a little... A little slow in the middle for me I thought it could have been shorter <laughs> um, so but I was like well everybody loves Erin Morgenstern and she's like a superstar so I'll try the starless sea and like this book it has dual narratives kind of I guess or multiple narratives it okay. has doors to other worlds um, which are mysterious and we don't understand them well uh, and I mean, like literally in the Starless Sea, one of the first things that happens is the, I presume he's the main character, comes up to a door and that's on a wall 
like it's a door and not a door and he could have opened it and walked through but he's not ready for that magic yet and practically the first thing that happens in the 10,000 doors of January is that the main character walks up to a door and opens it but does not walk through I mean right so they have very similar themes and I just couldn't do the starless sea I just returned it to the library and I said I can't do this book which it could be right now maybe it's I cannot do this book right now right. you can try maybe again I can do it later. it's I can not try going again. anywhere nope it'll be right there for me um but I was interested that and I got to thinking about books with doors to other worlds and this is a a thing that books have there are lots of books with doors to other worlds uh, I mean famously Narnia but many many others as well as a metaphor I guess for books themselves metaphor yeah Yeah. at my writing reading for writers book club we recently read a sean and mcguire book um in the wayward children series which also has people going through doorways and we only read the first book and some people in the group like jumped in and read all the other books but i've only read that first one still um so it's always interesting to me when people use the metaphor of escaping into other worlds through books but then take it to like going all the way into the books or going all the way into the worlds. I don't know. Yeah. As a reader, sometimes I I can't decide what I think. I don't necessarily want to go into actual books that I'm reading. <laughs> uh, but sometimes I, I do. I mean, I'm trying to think of you being dumped into Domesday Book. Um, or, <sighs> right? I just, yeah. yeah. Maybe I wouldn't pick that one. Um, I'd be because, helpful though. Because almost right? everyone like, dies, Lisa. Yeah, right. you know, that's a thing. I mean, have I had the inoculations is the question. Yeah, that's right. Um, but for a while, I was really into the um, Jasper Ford uh, Thursday Next series. Yeah. Like, as they were coming out. And, like, that's, like, a literary detective who goes into books to fix mm-hmm. things. And, I mean, it's a it's a trope that's used a lot. And it's almost always used in a slightly different way. Yeah. Do and you it's have favorites? Favorite books that I would go into? Oh, well, that's not what or, I was asking. That question way better. Favorite tropes where this idea of like going into the book, escaping into the book as metaphor. Um, it, I was thinking that I'm happy to read as many books as want to use that trope. It's not a trope that bothers me. But the thing that does bother me about this book is a trope. Uh, so there's another hint for you. Because uh, that's the thing with books is that there are, there are tropes that are used. And the reason that they're used is because you can relate them to other books that you've read or other stories that you've heard and it centers you in a book and you kind of know what it's going or what it's about or how it's going to be. But if there's a trope that you don't like, it can take you out of a book or, or annoy you while you're reading it too. Uh, so they're dangerous and useful. I'm trying to think of something else that's dangerous but useful and I don't know. Not snakes. Let's see. <laughs> hmm. Anyway, book tropes. Dangerous and useful. Dangerous and useful. Dangerous and useful. So are we ready to talk about this book with the, with spoilers? With yeah, I guess so, yeah. I guess so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Dennis, from here on out, not spoiler free, so you've been warned. Yes. Um. So we should start with the characters, of which there's not a huge list, thank goodness. Of really important characters. Yeah, I tried to make a list and it wasn't super long. Okay, so we've got January herself, January Scholar, who's our main character, who is Um, this, I guess, girl we're watching grow up and learn stuff. I I will add to, for those uh, listening at home, Obviously, I read this as a library book, and I took it back. So I'm counting on Lissa to have things in front of her. And the next name on this list is Wilda. Um, that was just her first, like, oh, maid. She was yeah. kind of raised by, <clears throat> like, uh, a housekeeper maid nanny person. Um, and part of the early um, early beginning of her growing and growing as a character is, like, she manages to get rid of her. Yeah, because Wilda's really regimented caretaker i see her with like the slapping the cane in her hand you know she's very yeah it just it, like so like you have this early moment of sort of cheering for january like oh good she's free from wilda now she can right because really before wilda things. she goes through a lot of nursemaids because she's a wild child um 
and I wonder if she named her Wilda because it's wild a like the but she's secretly the antithesis Ooh. of that. You know, she comb your hair, don't keep your stockings clean, blah blah blah. Um, so she's really uh, trying to turn January into, as she would say, a good girl. Right. Um, and that's the main influence January gets because we realize right away that her father's not around and that she's being raised in this giant mansion by this nanny. Yeah, and billionaire also. And billionaire. And billionaire, which seems kind of creepy to me. I mean, that, I thought that was like, yeah, you know, I got the good creep factor right away by the situation that she's in, which is... She says she's an in-between person, and it's kind of an in-between situation. You're part of this household and not part of this household. You're the beautifully dressed pet of this billionaire with your private nanny, and her room is in the attic. You know? Yeah, it, it plays into a lot of things I think we're used to seeing, where it's like a bad situation. Right. Right. In this big mansion, why should you have to sleep in the attic? Uh, so then we have Miss Jane Irimu who is the later watcher, I guess, not so much nanny, but companion of January. Uh, and she is a mysterious woman. Who She is a mysterious woman. Yes. Who arrives and is an employee of January's father, sent to protect and watch over her. And sent at a time when January doesn't understand why her father would want to send anyone to protect her. Right, because he has been an absent figure this whole time and then Jane Irimu just arrives um, and we'll talk some more about her I suspect I suspect Kay. so uh, we have Mr. Locke the billionaire collector <sighs> yeah who's presented in like some nice normal tropes in terms of like weird eccentric billionaire wants things a certain way right has rich eccentric friends um, like the trope I think is well set up at the beginning. Um, also one of my new year's resolutions for reading was to write in books more. So I bought a copy of this book, um, at my local bookstore. And at least at the beginning, I was reading the print edition and writing in it. Um, and so when I look and I stopped that and switched to the audiobook pretty soon, but some of the early things where they introduced Mr. Locke, um, I marked because I was, I was, he was raising red flags for me yeah. right from the beginning. Yeah, he is. But yes. not for what I thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, he's abusive in different ways than you think he's going to be abusive. Right? I like, I thought he was going to be normal abusive, and I was super proud that I saw those red flags. Good for you, Alyssa. And, except you're wrong. And then it was worse. <laughs> Right? I mean, that was bad enough. Yeah. Like, I was like, oh, okay, I can handle this. <laughs> like, I see how he's controlling. I see how his language is demeaning. I see yes. how he's manipulating people with his power. I just didn't know what I was saying when I saw those things. But you're, you weren't wrong, really. He is doing all of those things right. just for different right. reasons than you suspected. Uh, and we have, right in lockstep with him, Mr. Havemeyer who is his creepy associate. Yeah. Um, who gives uh, who also right away, bad vibes. Like, I re-listened to the beginning of the audiobook this morning, and right, which was amazing um, to go back and read again, um, having been to the end of the book now. Um, but at the beginning, when they introduced Mr. Havemeyer, he, like, has just shown up for a party, which he didn't think that he could make. But don't worry, he got in a big uh, shipment of slaves to run his sugar plantation, and he was able to get away. That's and right. then he speaks to Mr. Locke in front of January and Jane about how if Mr. Locke ever tires of them, Mr. Havemeyer could make good use of them. That's right. Like in like. Uh. And yeah. we should we should add that Jane is a very dark skinned person. And January, she says she's in between and nobody can ever decide what racial background right. she has. She's kind of cinnamon colored. She's a reddish hue with freckles and wild hair. But it's that Mr. Locke, which we'll discuss later, tells her, he says, you're well, like you have color, but you're not colored, he says, which January doesn't really understand until later. 
yeah. what that means to be colored in a world controlled by white people having all the power. Um, and we'll discuss that, I'm sure, also. Um, then we have Samuel Zappia, the son of the local grocer who reads adventure novels with or stories with January in his um, I underlined on page nine the sentence Samuel Zappia was my only non-fictional friend that's right that's right that was the first point in this book where I was like yes this is going to be a great book <laughs> Okay, so he is a he is a constant throughout. Um, we have Julian Scholar, who is January's dad. And he Julian Scholar is and I have to say, I thought she did a good job of not having me connect to this for a while. Is I said there there's two narratives. We have January's story and then there's chapters from this book that she acquires which is written by Yule Ian, a scholar of the city of Nin. And that is, of course, her dad. There's a big spoiler. Um, right. So he's both of these things. He's this guy from another world who's a scholar who's interested in things, and he's also Julian's scholar, her dad, uh, in this world. Um, and he's a, a complicated character that I've never made up my mind whether I want to like him or not. Type. I uh, agree. I want to reread the whole book now so that I can think about him more fully now mm -hmm. that we've seen multiple sides of his yeah. do, self. Do I forgive him for the things that he has done or do I not? Am I supposed to? And how many of the things that he did were because he was trapped certain places or not? Right. And was he trapped by choice or not? And is it really my place to judge that? And it's complicated. It is complicated, but... Yeah, like that. So I've, I'm still up in the air about him. I think there might be a sequel to this book. Maybe it will deal with him with some more uh, and give me the clarity that I want on him. Uh, January's other parent, which I did understand from the very, very, very beginning, is Adelaide Lee Larson, sometimes known as Aid. Is it aid? I didn't yeah, listen I to the audiobooks. Aid. I couldn't decide whether it's. I mean, by by having an e, the a should say its name. And I figured it was Adelaide. So maybe they call her Aid. Aid Larson, who is a a wild woman her whole life, I guess, and meets Julian through a door, and I guess is that wild spirit. She kind of reminded me of Calamity Jane. Yeah, it did have that vibe. If, I mean, and I'm talking Hollywood Calamity Jane, not the real Calamity Jane. Um, I It could be kind of, I grew up reading this like weird paperback of Calamity Jane letters to her daughter. Oh, yes. So like, it could have that feel too. Yeah, that's not a real book, you know. Just thought I'd let you know that. Yeah. So, yeah, I called it a weird paperback. Yeah, I, I actually met the lady who was promoting that book and saying that it was real, but it's a different story for another day. So, yes. Um, but it fits within the context of all of it this. It is, it is. It's supposed to be hard, weird yeah. stories that aren't real, that are real, that aren't that real. That are not real. And then wild women with daughters that they're trying to connect with but don't know how to do so and blah, blah, blah. And Adelaide exactly. Lee Larson is raised by her aunts, and it's an all-female household because men leave or die or are unreliable, and they just leave these hard women to be a, a band of women together. And there's, an, you know, there's that's something I thought was interesting. There's, in terms of parallelism, there's like the Larson aunts as this band of tough women who are making their own way in the world in this world, and Jane Irimu has a band of tough women who are making their own way in another world. Right. Um, and that theme of like the men are, I forgot what you just said, but it was lovely. Like oh. <laughs> they're bad or they leave or yeah. they die. Yeah. Um, like it's a pretty pervasive theme in this book and yet not in an all men are bad way. Yeah. 
yeah, not not all men are bad, but the the men have let these particular characters down in ways that have made it necessary for them to to do it themselves. Right. Um, and I added Sinbad on this list because I want to talk about this, Lissa. It's therapy time with Lissa. Yes. Sinbad is a dog. Wasn't that nice that there was a dog? <laughs> I wanted, I'm just longing to know <laughs> because I'm just, you know, reading along. La, 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 la. And then there's Sinbad the dog. And I was very worried throughout that Sinbad was going to get killed because one of my things is that I don't like books where the dog dies. And I can't remember whether I started this discussion with you or oh, you it was, started. Oh, I texted you. You texted was like, me. Marion, is this a dog Is book? this a dog <laughs> book? I'm like, what do you mean? And it turns out you don't like books with dogs. So let's discuss this. So why do you like books with dogs? I just actually have not ever been around dogs very much. And so so they're like, I don't understand them. I don't understand them. There you go. And I'm, I'm married to a guy who just seems to have to have a dog. After right. our last dog, I said, this is it. This is my last dog for 20 years. No more dogs. And I don't think he lasted five months without a dog. I don't think so either. After you guys last... got a new dog right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He started looking immediately and yeah. um, talked me into yet another dog. So now I have this crazy town puppy around here. Um, yeah. He just has to have a dog. But but so you don't have anything personally against dogs. You just don't understand them. I just don't understand them. So they're like characters that make me uncomfortable because I don't understand them. So did you end up being pro-Sinbad, or do you still not understand dogs? Um, I think I'm pro-Sinbad because it was a great way for January to have an ally. Yeah. Like, she needed a dog. She did, particularly because, like I said, for such a big book, there's surprisingly few characters in it. Yeah. That matter. And I guess he does, being... Somebody she can read to or talk to, which gives her an opportunity to have dialogue that she wouldn't have. And he protects her and he reacts to things and helps her think about what she's experiencing by his reaction. Right. Who do we trust and Um, who do we not trust? Right. And then because, I mean, huge spoilers on how it all works, right? But because of the way that they describe that, like, dogs always know where they're going. Like, he's not at risk when they travel. Right. So he's written... He's written into the story in a way that he can always go with her and there's never a fear that he won't make it through. Right. She can just cling to him and they're good together. Um, right. any, any, I, for, for those of us who, who worry about dogs, I will report Sinbad does live until the end of the book. Although he is kicked and beat up and drowned and shot and uh, brutalized in various ways. And he does right? end up... Like, I mean, multiple... I mean, at least one time, if not multiple times, she thinks that he's, he's dead. dead. Yes, a couple times she thinks that he's dead. Uh, but he does survive, although with a permanent limp. Um, he's kind of a three-legged dog by the end of the book. He has a bad bad limp. If he moves around too much. But he does make it to the end. So, whew. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So those are our characters and what they're doing. And... Um, how would you describe this book with spoilers? Without spoilers, I don't even know how to describe it. Like the, yeah. I mean, the description on the jacket's okay. Yeah. But those aren't the parts that super spoke to me about it. Yeah. Um, I think, I think the, you know, the Goodreads description, early 1900s, young woman, fantastical journey of self-discovery after finding a mysterious book is kind of it and leaves out a lot as well it yeah um a lot of it with spoilers hinges on who's related to who and why the fact that julian scholar is secretly from through a door and from another world and that aid is january's mother and um that jane Moo is from another world and that um the true nature of Mr. Havemeyer and the true nature of Mr. Locke and so forth. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on there. And some of it's sorting out the mystery and the people sorting out the mysteries for themselves. And then a whole lot of the plot, I mean, and that's kind of for the reader and for the characters. Yeah. But then a whole lot of the plot is, are these power structures and the ways that things are the ways that things have to be? Right. Or can we change them? 
Right. I'm making another Which note. is exciting. Um, you're talking about power structures. And something I noticed just on a power structure front is that Mr. Locke and his friends represent a kind of modern progress in quotations and industry of conquering the world and being the bosses of it and um, controlling the forward movement of technology in a specific direction. And the flip side of the coininess is nature. All these doors between worlds are always, almost always in natural places. The vast majority of them are in fields or mountains or islands in the middle of the sea or uh, you know, grasslands or whatever, uh, mountaintops in Japan. And the worlds that you go into through those doors are almost always, if not maybe entirely, always less technologically advanced and more in tune with nature. Uh, and I wondered whether that was a conscious choice on Alex Harrow's part in, because Mr. Locke harps all the time on stability and progress versus wildness. I, I loved, I mean, I both loved and hated every time he talked because he's such a mouthpiece for like so many things. And he's, he speaks with those like manipulative, powerful words where he's saying he's for progress, but then he says, we're closing all the doors because that's where the change comes through. Right. And he makes change be a thing that's bad and progress be a thing that actually is maintaining the control he has. Like, it, he was just so, so well-written at that doublespeak. Um, and certainly believed it himself. I'm um, fully. Oh, it was so interesting. That whole metaphor was carried out so well. Yeah. I'm writing yet more notes to myself on this little tiny scrap of paper in my worst handwriting as we go of things to make sure to... This may be the world's longest podcast. I don't know. I've got to keep moving, I guess. It may be. Um, ah! Um, okay, so next, you had you had written me some questions here. I'm kind of reading them as we go along about book marketing. So if you have a book like this with a complicated plot that needs to keep a lot of secrets, you can't give those away in the jacket copy or the marketing of the book and yet you have to give people a general idea of what they're getting into right i don't know how to do it well yeah i guess the only thing i can think of is to like i said since since it's a story that relies on other stories or or books live in in genre you can compare it to other things maybe that's what maybe that's what book blurbs are for you know that you get from famous authors or I think so. Well, so even my kids notice that the front of this book has the has the book blurb "Unbearably Beautiful" by Amal El Motar right. on the front, and that's who wrote. This is how you lose the time war. But for me, it wasn't that Amal called it unbearably beautiful. It's that Amal was willing to do the cover blurb, right? And that and told you... me I wanted to read it because reasons of whatever the message was was going to matter to me. Yeah. And, but when you look at this is how you lose the time war, it is also a book that has very beautiful sentences in it. It's a very high literary, I don't want to say flower, but flowery kind of writing style. And so she makes a good person to blurb this because this book also has very beautiful sentences in it. Every now and again, I would just stop and say, that is a virtuoso sentence. Uh, yeah. Lyrical is the correct word for that in terms of uh, it let me know coming into this book. And the book also has flowers on its cover, for Pete's sake. Uh, but it let right. me know coming into the book that I could expect a, a lush book. This was not going to be a a Dan Brown page turn-in thriller that I was going to read in one night. This is going to be a fairly slow read. 
with complex, very pretty sentences in it. Um, and that blurb was one reason that you know that. So that's one thing. You can market this book to you by saying, look, this person that you love appreciates this book. Okay, I'll buy it. And you can market it to me by saying, oh, this has all the adjectives. Marion is going to want that. Um, so maybe that's one way to do it. Of course, word of mouth is the thing that sells books more than anything else. So. Right. And is word of mouth then the ways that other people describe it? Or is it like the social capital and relationships of those people? Right. Yeah. But it, and it is kind of interesting because it is a very people and relationship oriented book that inhabits the traditions of magic and fantasy. And storytelling. And storytelling. And, and yeah, you know, I'm kind of a nut on magic systems and yeah. I thought she did a pretty good job here. I was a little worried that because the character is always some sort of chosen one, you know, they have to be slightly more special. She, January, has an ability to open doors that nobody else in this book has. She does it easier or she's growing in her powers throughout it. And the author does tell you what the rules are. There are rules. And then she lets January break them. Right. And she lets January learn how to break them in extreme circumstances where she's forced to experiment, not just like, oh, that's cool. What if I did this? But yeah. like, I will die if this doesn't work. Right. But at the end, by the end of the book, when it's easy for her, she just pops in and out of doors at will. Um There's this discussion in the city of Nin, like you should come and get trained or learn things, be educated. And she says, no, it's just, it's just my faith that allows me to do this rather than study and hard work. Um, right. Which I was like, okay, that's a good explanation. And also disturbed me a little um, because this world needs more, in my opinion, um, study and hard work unless I feel good about my abilities or I feel I feel like I really should be allowed to do this, so I'm going to do it. Um, you know, knowing the rules before you break them is a good thing, <laughs> I guess, to me, personally. But it, I thought it worked okay to say this special legendary power is something that turns out that I have, and it's working for me, and I'm just going on from here. So I thought it worked within the book and disturbed me all at the same time. Okay, so I'm going to push at that a little bit. Because okay. what if... Do it. So you know, like, when we start reading the part that turns out to be from her father, and he's like, academia, academia, cite my source, cite my source. Actually, I'm just going to have to tell you a story. Right. Right? Like, right. that's how his book starts. Right. So for me, January's learning and her, her hesitance or refusal to go back and do the academic part is that she jumped into the doing and learned from the doing like sure. she took the risks she saw the she saw the consequences she felt the consequences she you know like she did the I science get live and, kind of and i'm a, and i'm a believe that you can learn by doing you the uh, writing is a great example of that you can study writing all day long but until you sit down and and write several hundred right. thousand words you don't know how it really works but you still as you're writing those several hundred thousand words got to say this worked and this didn't i'm learning this um, even if it's an intu intuitive learningness, and any other field is exactly the same, you can uh, become a great CEO without having an MBA. But while you're becoming a great CEO, you still have to be analyzing <laughs> what's working instead of just yes taking it on faith that every decision that you make is a great decision. Every um, merger you go into or... Uh, 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 managerial practice you implement or story structure you decide on or use of you know how many adjectives should a book have all of that is something yeah. that you need to try and maybe fail at and learn what's looking for you but you still need to be self-educating instead of just saying faith will carry me forward I believe it so it must be true so yeah I get you and I'm still going to be disturbed as well a little bit a, a tiny bit it was not a deal breaker for me or and i thought it worked well in the context of the book so i was like okay i believe that we'll look forward to that um 
What did you think about the part at the beginning where it revealed, as they were explaining like what doors were and how they worked a little bit, that doors often don't appear to uh, people that anybody would miss? Like that whole premise that that the pe- the kind of people who go out to play and somebody's watching for them to come home that evening never find doors. It's only the kind of people who could disappear. Huh. I must have blipped over that in my my oh, illness. I love that part. But yeah, I, and and the Starless Sea also had this like doors appear to certain people and they don't appear to other people. Right. Um. And. I think that's part of this kind of world of the imagination, maybe, um, or willingness to be free in, have a free interior, maybe, or, or just a handy way of explaining why I never found a door. Right. I couldn't decide if that was like, oh, wait, that's why I've not disappeared <laughs> into a book yet. That's right. We, we both grew up in fairly ruralish or or free areas at a time point when children ran free right yeah um i certainly was because i'm from south dakota and i was just like turned loose at the age of three and then when a neighbor down the street rang a cowbell all the children came home at night um she had they had six children but every child in the neighborhood knew it was time to go home for dinner when she rang her bell but i can remember like going in fields and going to tumble down abandoned houses from before there was a town there, you know, um, investigating things and feeling like you're on the edge of the mysterious or something different. And I think that's something that children have. And maybe the concept here is that people lose it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. I, so you were you were like all in on this book from the beginning, then. Um, I think so. Although it, I, I was you know Jan, it was January and it kept being January. So I switched from the print to the audio book. Um, it was January a lot this I, year. It was like double January. It was yeah, like <laughs> quadruple January. Sometime in the middle of January, I switched to the audio book. And there was a day that I um, called in sick to work and I like puttered around my house all day listening to this audiobook and kind of being like lost in slow housework and like just listening and being in the story and um, which was a nice metaphor in general for this book. Mm-hmm. But also um, that's where I really got hooked by the book. And the audiobook helped me a ton for when I got to like, they're not really scary parts, but like parts with triggering violence or parts with triggering uh, people being manipulative and a little bit more scary than normal. Mm-hmm. Um, the audiobook kept playing, so so I didn't put it down. Um, so even if I felt uncomfortable, I kept going because I could passively just hold really still and the story would keep going. Um, and I think I'll be fine going back to reread all that. But during some of those more intense scenes, I really, the audiobook is what helped me get through those. Yeah. Because they do, like lock January away in a sanitarium at one yeah. point in time and tie her down, tie her down, her. Mm-hmm. all these things like that. Um, people who are trying to tell you you're crazy when you know you're not. So all that, all that is in there. Uh, and I guess since I had the paper copy, I, I could put it down and walk away and that probably did not yeah. assist me in getting through it in a timely manner either. Uh, And there were a lot of challenging themes in this book. Um, The one that was a standout to me is the the concepts of race and privilege. Yes. Uh, We've read a lot of books that deal with race, and I thought this one did a better and more natural job of dealing with it than others that I have read. I agree. Um, In terms of talking about, like, your... January in particular, her slow awareness of the racial landscape of turn of the century America and what it means and who has the power and why. Uh, And in the later stages of the book, when the uh, trappings of privilege are stripped away from her, then she feels it more. Yes. Uh, And I thought that was really... Well done. The only part of it that 
stung me a little bit is Jane Irimu, who is a superstar, strong, badass character. But, and, and she has her own, you get that whole discussion of colonialism done really well through her story. She is originally from Africa and experienced as a child the loss of her own family and culture to European colonialism. And she escapes through a door where she grows into a powerful, self-possessed warrior woman who knows what she thinks and who she is. Yeah. And I really liked all of that. Except I kept thinking how well-spoken she was. And and that was a problem I had with this book that I thought a lot of the characters sounded quite a bit alike. Um, but if you're a child from I'm not quite sure where in late 19th century Africa and then you're in another world entirely where you're mainly running around with a hunting group and then you come back where did she get all the book learning yeah I have no idea yeah and that that was the okay. only thing in her character that kind of like nah, she's maybe she needs to be because the philosophical nature or the surety matches her character as a whole but I wanted to see it done without making her sound like Julian Scholar. Um, since there's no gap in her story that where she, you know, holds up and in and reads a lot of books or goes to university somewhere or is in the, um, she and her little sister are hauled away to a, I guess in kind of colonial orphanage. But she doesn't stay there very long. So she's not there long enough to get whatever education they would have for her there. And she was older, though, too, right? Yeah, and she's older than her little sister. Her little sister, you think, is like two or three when this happens, maybe? Well, no, but I mean in the story. In the story. I that yeah, she she's, was... Well, she's been away with the Irimu a long time. So she, I got her like 45 is what I'm guessing. 50? I mean, that doesn't seem that I know. I'm at least middle-aged. I had her. There's never a real discussion of exactly how old she might be. Um, yeah. But that was the only flaw in her. And, and there, I guess there was a part of me that thought, is it necessary? There's so much to like about her. And there's so much that's honorable and worthy about right. her. Is it necessary for her also to be a super well-spoken philosophic powerhouse? Why does she have to be that too? Is It's enough to... I thought it would be enough for her to inhabit the background of her story, which has denied her certain things due to the circumstances of her life. Unless maybe that's, I'm just guessing, but like one of the qualities that opens doors for people or one of the qualities that makes it possible for people to see other right. places to be. Yeah. The thing that got to me in this book was that that the world that they were inhabiting in 1900s, what is probably basically our world, um, you know, was kind of the same kind of horrible that it really was. Um, but that the way that the characters are going to make it better is by reopening the doors to the other worlds. Yeah. I don't know. I can't decide it's, if it felt hopeful enough or not. Like, I don't know. Or despairing <laughs> enough. I, I had a lot of trouble doing the math, which is not unusual for me, to figure out exactly what year everything was taking place. Yeah. Um, it tells you how old she is at the beginning and the certain things, and I kept doing the math and coming up with different numbers. But at the very end of the book, it says it's 1911 at the end of the book. And I had started making a list of like phrases that made me worry. And this is, uh, I think, in our notes, what I call the perils of historical fiction. Right. I had like a little list of things that made me f have trouble believing it was 1911. She talks about the sound of an idling car. And I looked up and there in 1911, there were 600,000 cars in the world, or the United States, and, and 20,000 trucks. Now, the grocery boy, Sam, his family has a, a shiny new truck in 1911. And it's possible that... I mean, and Mr. Locke has a car. Right. But I don't know that the that the idling of a car is a is a common noise that you would know. And as I say this as somebody who has in my garage right below my feet as we speak. Yeah, you do. A nineteen sixteen Model T. 
uh, and I grew up around these cars. Um, and they have a very distinctive sound that is not like the idling of a modern car. It's more, more rough. Um, yeah. And I was just wondering how common the sound of an, if you were writing this book in 1911, you're writing this, this narrative in 1911, would you pick that? sound out of all the sounds in the world the sound of an idling car and the other one was she was talking about movies and how they say the end at the end uh and how nice it would be to have you know the end credits roll and know that you've reached a certain point but movies were in er really really early stages in 1911 as well and she lives almost you know she does travel the world but she lives a lot of her time in this very rural place there are movies but there are but they're also not movies. I mean, you're just seeing right. the birth of movies for the mass market or everybody going to the movies all the time. Um, my father was born in 1923, amazingly, and he can remember the first movie he saw. Like, it was not, he lived in a small town, but it was not a normal thing to go to the movies until he was of an age to remember it. Uh and maybe that's part of the, the ruralness, but she does live in a mostly a very rural setting. So there were a couple things that I would like that disturbed me, and I kept trying to decide whether World War One had started yet, which in the end it has not. But <sighs> but I was thinking in terms of your comment, if if opening all the doors is it a good thing or is it not? Mr. Locke has been harping on peace in our time, all this time, and if three years later the entire world is thrown into chaos, is that the Thematically, is that the leftovers of failed policy by Mr. Locke and his cohorts? Or is this what happens when you let the light shine through the cracks? Is that massive change occurs and sometimes it occurs in ways that kill several million people? Yeah, it was it was like potentially exciting and potentially scary. Yeah. And, um, and it 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 lets january be the potential heroine in the sense that she's undoing the work of Locke, and of the sense that she's opening up the world to the possibility of change again right which is going to benefit make us most of the characters in this book right you know but it doesn't reassure us like everything will be okay right because most of the examples of change in this world have been their own books yeah <laughs> I mean, they're, they're their own storytelling narratives so. yeah and like i said the the ultimate end result of all that change has been overall a change for the better particularly for people who are in this book people of color women uh other minorities even like samuel of a kid with a big imagination in a small world generally the 20th century and, and the 21st century have opened up more opportunities for people like that as opposed to the people who already had power, like Locke. Um, right. But the getting there is painful. So I ended up sort of coming to terms with her as like the magical fairy godmother of agency. <laughs> and she's just going to like wave that wand everywhere and create create the doors again. Right. So that the change can occur and people can have the agency to make the change. And this is the big central theme of this book, I think, is that... Waiting for January to decide that she is done trying to fit in and trying to be a good girl for Mr. Locke and behave the way people want her to behave and instead embrace the weirdness of herself uh, and choose a path that she wants to choose that's maybe riskier as opposed to doing the safe thing of running home to Locke House and sitting in your attic. Right. Which she's not even successful at. No. I mean, that was the part <laughs> that I, I thought was so well done is that really unhealthy relationship she has with Mr. Locke, where she does keep kind of trying to please him. Yeah. Um, All the way to the end. And, and she's not successful. Yeah. That, that line at the end. I think that might be my current Facebook graphic still. Like <laughs> <laughs> that line at the end just about broke me because um, it was just so true. Yeah. And. It's like, to me, that was, and I didn't, sometimes I feel like books with big themes like that are beating you over the head with them. And right. in this one, I'll say, I understood what the theme was, and I knew what it was, and it was very clear what it was, the statement of theme, and the, but I didn't feel like it was beating me over the head with it. 
I agree. So I like that very much. Um, I Do you feel think you'll like, read it again? Oh, gosh. Would I read it again? Yes. Will I get around to reading again? Probably not for a while. Um, due to my reading slump, my reading backlog is fairly catastrophic. Up to and including, I have promised to read some manuscripts for some people. Um, and also, I am now on a super self-imposed deadline of finishing my revisions on my own current book in time to enter in a big rev pit contest in April. Um, so, and it takes me a long time to revise a book. I'm very yeah. thorough. So, I don't know. I'll eventually, yes, right away, probably not. Um, here's my pitch for reading it again. Okay. Because we're doing spoilers and because you've read to the end and you know that the whole thing is her sitting down and writing the story to hand Samuel, yep. whose mind has been erased by Mr. Locke, Which is so to remind him who she is. And who he is. Like, when you read it again, and I'm only maybe, I don't know, an hour and a half into the audiobook the second time, um, it's, like, really, like, touching and adorable flirting and a little, like, not sexy, but, like, like, it's just so adorable when she's trying to describe their, like, childhood, childhood friendship transitioning to maybe liking each other and knowing that the whole thing is addressed to him and that he doesn't know about it. It makes it really good. Okay. I believe you. Like, but this, so this also brings us to the one trope that the way you don't like dog books, I don't like in books. So it... It didn't ruin a book for me, and I love the book, and the book's great, but one thing that bothered me in it is the trope of insta-love. Um, really? You think there was insta-love, really? Heck yes! I mean, let's look at Aid and Julian. She wanders out in the field, opens oh, up the okay, door, yeah. he's standing there, and they bam, they fall in love. She kisses him right there, and then they spend the next, they don't see each other again, and they spend the next umpteen years searching the world, and he, like, turns away from his scholarship to find doors to find her, and she runs away from home and finds stores looking for him until they can finally be together again, and they just fall into each other's arms, and they're happy, 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 happy. They know nothing about each other. Yeah, um, okay, I apologize. I just blocked that out. <laughs> um. <laughs> Because that's silly. <coughs> and there's, there's less of that with um, January and her beau. There, that was some quality boy next door romance. It's a quality and export next door, boy next door romance. But I never, I mean, he's the only person that she knows. So maybe it's understandable, but she's not the only person he knows. What is it about her that makes him so amazingly devoted to her? Through up to and including risking his own life, um, repeatedly, repeatedly, yeah. when he has, other than her early child things, has not really seen her or been involved with her life for like years. Um, so that had inklings of insta love to me. Um, although, but the other one, I was like, no, you don't just toss over your everything for somebody you saw once. And I say this as a woman who married her husband on the fifth occasion that she saw him. Um, and I'm still opposed to insta-love as a uh, trope. So that was the one thing that upset me. I understood why it needed to happen, because unless those two people are looking for each other like that, then they don't go through all those doors and discover all those things and end up in a terrible situation that they end up in. But it's still, I was like, no. Yeah, I don't know how you would have done it differently exactly, no. but also... I don't know, maybe if somebody just, like, walks out of thin air, maybe that has enough magic. I don't know. Maybe insta-love is allowed in instances where somebody walks through a door from another world. Whatever. You're just changing the rules to suit yourself, Lisette. I'm just making up insta-love rules that can't really happen to me, and I feel very secure about them. I feel very secure about them, too. So there you go. So that was that was the one thing that I was like, because it's a big nope for me on a personal basis and is not a problem for other people, when I was reading it, so I was like, insta-love. But like I said, that's part of being a reader is your personal bugabears. Like me, I'm always happy to see a dog in a book. But, you know, unless they you die. You don't text your friend in a panic because you're worried it's a dog book? 
What? No, I don't do that. Everybody does that, Mary. I, I wish that people could see our texture data because I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? You were, you were like, what, are, do you not, what's wrong? What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> so, so, yes. Hmm. Oh, this was a great book. Thanks for recommending it to me. Well, thanks for taking a leap into an unknown book with me that uh, neither one of us knew what to expect from. It was a good risk to take. It was. Next time on the Book Evangelist podcast, we'll be discussing Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine by Gail Honeyman, which was recommended to us by a listener of our podcast. Thank you for listening to the Book Evangelist podcast. Please remember to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Notes for this and previous episodes are available on the Book Evangelist website. Send us your comments and, of course, your book recommendations at thebookevangelist at gmail.com. Stop.